we start first with Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Federal Conservative Party, leader of the opposition in the House of Commons in Ottawa. And I'm pleased to welcome him back. Aaron O'Toole, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming on again. Happy New Year, Mike. It's good to be back. I appreciate you doing it once again. Let's talk about anti-COVID lockdowns and restrictions in Canada right now. You've been speaking out about this, and it's interesting. Like, if you take a look across the country, this is like patchwork of restrictions in Canada. Here in British Columbia, schools are open. Kids going back to school today. In Ontario, schools shut down. You've been talking about your concerns around lockdowns. What are your concerns there? Well, my concerns is we don't seem to be learning the lessons from the first part of the pandemic. So when this happened two years ago, Mike, uh, Justin Trudeau said he was going to have domestic capacity for N95 masks. We remember China hoarding some of the PPE and we couldn't get enough masks for our front lines. We said we were going to have domestic capacity. We were going to have rapid testing and testing capacity. We were going to contact trace. All of this stuff that the federal liberals promised hasn't been fulfilled. In fact, BC teachers said they really were worried about the start for a few reasons. The fact there weren't enough rapid tests and there weren't enough N95 masks. I mean, and it's frustrating. Two years in, Canadians have been vaccinated in very high levels, some of the highest levels in the world. We shouldn't have to use the same approach of lockdowns two years later in the fourth wave because we've been vaccinated. We have so many other tools that we should have to manage COVID. That, that has to be the point we're at now. And so I'm frustrated because Mr. Trudeau on his front doorstep promised a number of these tools that just simply weren't there when Omicron started so, breaking out. So, so you think, therefore, that we should be just wide open in Canada, like everything should be open as, as usual, restaurants should be open, schools should be open across the country. You shouldn't have to, I mean, what about the vaccine passports? You think that should be relaxed too? No, I think any of the measures that provinces are doing to, to reduce the spread, using, using passports, using reduced size and, and how, many, how many people can be in an establishment, those rules for vaccinated people are much smarter than just saying wide-scale lockdowns and shutdowns. You know, Quebec's back to curfews. Uh, which is, you know, pretty extreme limitation on liberty. And in many cases, we could manage better if we had some of those tools alongside the passports, alongside some of the rules. But I'd rather see us stay open because particularly for kids, long-term impacts of COVID, we're already starting to see it in mental health rates so, and other things. So let's use all tools to manage COVID, not uh, not shut everything down. So you think that in the province of Quebec, for example, then that the schools should be open, there should be no curfew, and they should fight the virus with more, more masking or more PPE? Correct? Well, you know, what a lot of the provinces have said, Mike, uh, and we saw this before Christmas, it was like an episode of the Hunger Games trying to find a rapid test. If you feel a symptom and take a rapid test, you can take yourself out of the chain of spread. That's a key tool that Trudeau promised in spring of 2020. All other countries have, have distributed tens of millions of rapid tests. We were one of the slowest to the dance. Right. Why are we still short N95 masks? That was like the first thing that, that was a critical tool in the pandemic. So it, it's almost like the federal government who promised these things. These are all federal issues, Mike. You know, they yeah. said they would have domestic supply for these things. That simply hasn't materialized, and that gives the provinces fewer tools to work with as they're approaching reducing the spread. Speaking to federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, let me play a comment here for you the other day from the federal health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, talking about the potential for mandatory vaccination 
for everyone in Canada. Now, this is provincial jurisdiction, but you'll hear him here say that he thinks provinces should consider mandatory vaccination. Have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. What will make us move through this crisis and end it is vaccination. And I see in my own province, uh, 50% of hospitalizations now in Quebec are due to people not having been vaccinated. That's a, a burden on healthcare workers, a burden on society, which is very difficult to, um, to bear and for many people difficult to understand. So that's why I'm signaling this as a, as a, as a, as a conversation. Okay, the conversation he's referring to there is the potential for mandatory vaccination. Aaron O'Toole, your thoughts? Well, this is more diversion by the federal liberals. You know, they don't deliver the tools they need to Premier Horgan and other people. And then they suggest things that aren't even in their control. He's not even, Duclos is not even following his own department's guidance, Mike, on getting vaccine levels up. You talk to any experts to get some of the hesitant, some of the people that still haven't done it after a full year, the more you turn it into an attack in a, in a very polarized environment, those people get more hesitant. So what we have mm. to do is encourage and educate as much as possible. Canadians have largely done their part. I, I wish everyone did get vaccinated, but it is a personal decision. And some of the people, there's only a very small, small, hardcore fringe of people that protest and, and throw stones and things like this. Most people that haven't been vaccinated have some degree of question or hesitancy. Duclos' own guidance, Mike, says don't attack, don't turn this into a divisive nature. Yet this is what yeah. Justin Trudeau did when he launched the campaign in the midst of the pandemic. And now the health minister is doing this, putting the burden on the provinces, when we really should be saying, hey, let's get as many people vaccinated, but also use rapid test, max, mas masking, and all of the tools to keep us safe. And why do we still have ICU capacities at lower levels. There should have been committed federal dollars to help provinces ramp that up because it's really this stress on our hospital system is is the big worry. And we've had two years to fix this. I propose sixty billion in the in the federal election over a, a number of years to help the provinces build up this key capacity. Speaking to Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, let me ask you about another topic while I have you here, and that is the, the proposal once again here for a tax on home equity. So new report out from UBC and the group over there, led by Paul Kershaw, who will be on the show later here, uh, proposes a tax on homes valued over $1 million. Uh, this is something that's been floated before. Uh, the federal government keeps saying that it's not on, they're not going to do it. Your thoughts on this report? You know, this is where people should be very worried about what the Liberals' plans are here. Um, they're, they're funding studies about taxing the primary uh, sale of your home. They're, they're having agencies like CMHC uh, examine and gather data on this, and they have no plan to actually get housing built. We've had six years of the Trudeau government doing very little and the problem getting worse, especially in the, in the greater Vancouver region and in Toronto. So people should be very worried about what the long-term plan here is. And that's Trudeau wants to come after home equity. They see it as a way to pay for some of their out-of-control spending. How they will do it, they're going to be very sneaky, just like they said they were going to cancel the GST 
and never did back in the day. So you can't trust the liberals here. It's only really been the conservatives that have been clear to say, we're going to protect people's home equity, and we're going to build a million homes. That's what I pledged to do, incentivizing and actually giving Vancouver 15% of the the crown lands that the federal government owns for development so we can get things built, get people into homes. Okay, a home equity tax keeps coming up. And the federal liberal government, despite what you're saying there, keeps saying that they're not going to do it. So let me play this clip here for you get your thoughts. This is the federal uh, fam- uh, social development minister, Ahmed Hussein, uh, saying once again, like, we're not going to do this. We're not going to bring a capital gains tax or home equity tax in. Here's what he said, and I'll get your thoughts. The conservatives refuse to take no for an answer. The government of Canada is not looking at charging capital gains tax on primary residences. This is not under consideration by our government. Okay, you can't take no for an answer. So they keep saying, no, we're not doing it. But you keep saying, well, maybe they are doing it? Uh, He just misled Canadians with that statement. The federal government is not looking at doing this. Agencies of the federal government, he's responsible for them. So agencies like CMHC, Mike... Okay, I'll see these exact studies. CMHC. Some of the Liberals' own MPs have suggested this has to be key as a way to deal with affordability. And a lot of Canadians, uh, as you know, save for retirement and the value of your home. So this is not the way to deal with the housing crisis. We've got to stop foreign money influencing, uh, driving up costs, especially in the Vancouver region. But we have to get things built. This is the real issue. We have a major supply issue as a G7 country, and I think the federal government is one part of addressing that and it's by building more supply and helping first-time home buyers into homes it's not yeah. by going after the equity in people's homes so the minister should then stop all agencies from advancing mm. all of these schemes to track and plan for home equity tax and we're going to start pushing because the minister is hiding behind these agencies that are doing his bidding thank you for coming on today appreciate it Happy New Year, Mike. Have a good one. All right. Welcome back to the show. He's taking a look at some of the BC highway conditions we've seen, especially over the last couple of days. We got some more rough weather on the way. You take a look at that accident that happened on the Trans Canada on Saturday around dinner time. This is like a multi vehicle pileup there. Shut down the Trans Canada between Sycamus and Salmon Arm. That was a brutal crash. Uh, one person killed in that crash. Six people went to hospital. You see another carnage on the road, too. The day before, had a chain reaction crash on Highway 97 in the interior. Have a listen to this report here from Global News on that one. And Highway 97 south of Vernon was closed for more than two hours Friday morning following a chain reaction crash. The road conditions at the time were extremely icy, and they played a significant role in this collision. A tractor-trailer was jackknifed across the southbound lanes of the highway near Birney Road. Police said the semi had collided with another vehicle headed in the same direction. Two other vehicles ended up in the ditch as they tried to avoid the initial crash. Now, fortunately, only one person suffered minor injuries. Yeah, obviously, uh, winter is in full force in the Okanagan. Okay, I'm always really amazed when you see those huge tractor trailers jackknifed across the highway in a pileup and a, and a terrible crash like that. Let's check in with Dan Dickey now. He is a trucker in uh, Chilliwack. Follow him on Twitter, at BC Trucker one on Twitter. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Dan, thanks for coming on. 
Oh, good morning, Mike. How's it going? It's going good, Dan. There's been some pretty hairy conditions on BC highways the last few days. We're hearing about lots of accidents. You ever been involved in any kind of a hairy pileup like that? I've been involved in a couple, yep. I was in a little incident out by the BC Alberta border, uh, up by Jasper there a couple years ago. No. What, what's that like when you're behind the wheel of a big rig and you see something like that unfolding in front of you? Pretty, you're, you feel pretty helpless. There's not much you can do. You, you just do what you can to mitigate damage and hope for the best. Now, what do you think about some of the accidents we're seeing right now? Like we're hearing a lot about these sort of chain reaction accidents. Like one, you get one vehicle spins out, and then the dominoes start falling. Well, I think what happens is a lot of a lot of people are staying too close to each other. They're not giving each other enough space. They're not, you know one guy's experienced one guy's not as experienced they're trying to get a, operate around each other and yeah they it's just it's too easy to to forget what the level of experience of the guy in front of you might be and you know you're trying to get around him and you know something goes amiss yeah so for that situation like for people to drive big trucks in british columbia you have to have a special license you have to have special training right but are you saying like some there are some drivers who just don't don't have enough experience or knowledge or what you you can have all the training you want but until you're actually put in a situation i mean we've all had situations where you know you've been trained to do something but you don't do it all the time so you're not quite as adept at it as say somebody that's been in in the industry for 10, 15, 30 years, even at two, three, five years, guys aren't necessarily trained. I mean, I mean, granted half the year is in these sorts of conditions outside yeah. of the lower mainland, but until you've actually been in different situations repeatedly, it's, it's quite a learning curve. Speaking of truck driver Dan Dickey at BC Trucker One on Twitter, Dan, when you take a look at the highway conditions in the province right now, I mean they're still sort of mopping up from the the, the devastating floods that we've seen. Some highways open, um, but we continue to see accidents. How would you describe current conditions on our highways right now? Current conditions generally are are, are decent, but they're treacherous. It's it's yeah. time to slow down, like. The, the the speed signs are that's maximum speed that you should be going in ideal conditions. Well, this time of year, there's very few days where you're having ideal conditions, and and guys are you know pushing the envelope with the with the Trans Canada being closed up through Cash Creek. Guys are a lot of guys are losing fifteen to twenty percent, fifteen to thirty percent of their weekly revenue because they have to go up to Kamloops and then across to Cash Creek and up to Prince George and, and points north, and so with our restricted hours of service, guys are, you know, missing out on trips. You know, guys are losing revenue, and they're trying to make some of that time up as best they can to the detriment of the rest of the motoring public. So, so what do they do? They put the hammer down. They try to as yeah. best they can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think about the maintenance of our highways right now? Like, you're a guy who's driven around a lot of Western Canada, like, when you take a look at our highways and snow clearance, maintenance of our highways, how are we doing, say, compared next door in, say, Alberta? Or is there, or is there different levels of maintenance uh, across the there's, province? There's huge differences in levels of maintenance in the province. And then when you get outside the province, it changes again. There's, you, 
when you're coming westbound into British Columbia, you get to the BC Alberta border, and there is basically a line across the road where you can see, you know, visibly see the difference in road maintenance. You know, whether you're coming through in Jasper or where you're coming through um, west of Banff, you can see the difference in road maintenance. The the highways maintenance crews blame blame different weather patterns you know, different levels of available service that they're, they've been given to do the job. And I mean, even in BC, in different service areas, you can see lines on the road. Oh, this is where this contractor stops. And this is where that contractor starts. And there is a line across the road. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. uh, What you just said there, like comparing BC to Alberta. So what you're saying that the highways are better maintained in in Alberta. I'm saying they're maintained to a different level. Generally, it's better within yeah. within a day, a day and a half. For the most part, Alberta highways are cleared from the, the entire paved surface. In BC, four days after our weather events, you go out west of um, west of Chil- or east of Chilliwack here, and there's still compact snow and ice in the left-hand lane. You go down over the Coquihalla. You know, there's a section between Hope and and the top of the Smasher Box Canyon chain up area that is just atrocious. You know, yeah. some sections are one lane. You know, one lane has been cleared, and then they only clear it to the to what we refer to as the fog lines on the outside of the of the lanes. Whereas uh, there was a time when the road would get cleared within a couple of days. The road would be cleared from the outside of the shoulder to the outside of the shoulder, giving people uh, an extremely or more room in which to operate. And that's just right. not being done anymore. Have you driven the Coquihalla recently? I was stuck on it for 11 hours Thursday night. Oh, wow. Why were you stuck? Um, well, all the traffic in front of me came, came to a screeching halt where the old tram building is. And there we sat waiting for the traffic in front of us to move the, we were plowing 10 inches of snow after we got down below the Shylock rest area with our trucks. And, um, I mean, you get to the bottom and then you go up, up a little rise with a couple of ass curves before you hit the, the highways five and three where they come back together. Yeah. And, um, inevitably someone will, who's less prepared or doesn't have snow tires on their trucks or, you know, doesn't understand you know, how to keep up momentum in order to, to successfully navigate an uphill stretch. Somebody comes to a stop, and then everyone else comes to a stop behind them, and there we sit, right? Hey, Dan, last question for you. What's your message to the other truckers out there who may be listening? What would you say to them? What, slow down? Slow down. Yeah. Pay attention. You know, understand. If you, if you seem to think you're behind somebody that knows what they're doing, maybe stay behind them for a bit, whether you have to slow down a little bit going uphills. Dan, thanks. Hey, Dan, stay safe out there, man. Thanks for coming on. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about back to school today in British Columbia. Schools are open. Kids are back in the classroom effective today. Schools are shut down in some other parts of Canada. 
but schools open in British Columbia. Dr. Bonnie Henry saying schools are keeping schools open as a top priority for her. Have a listen. I have tasked schools specifically to take stock and prepare plans to safely operate over the coming months with the potential for reduced staff and keeping children safely in school and reducing the risk of functional closures because of staff illness. It's essential that we keep our schools open for children just as we've kept grocery stores and pharmacies and hospitals open. This is going to be and remains our highest priority. So Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking on Friday. Let's check in with Terry Mooring now, president of the BC Teachers Federation. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Terry. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here today. So schools open today. We see in some other parts of Canada, schools are shut down. Are you happy to see the schools open today or do you, do you think they should be open at all right now? Well, we've been dedicated to keeping schools open and safe, and you know certainly that's where we're aligned with Dr. Henry. We understand the importance of schools being open. Um, we also have heard time and time again um, that keeping schools open is a top priority of both the provincial health office and provincial government. However, you know what we see is uh, not enough uh, attention being paid to the preventative measures that need to be in place. In other words, teachers were in class in schools last week preparing for functional closures, but there's additional health and safety measures that we think should be in place, but there is a resistance to do that. And if schools really are the top priority for keeping open, then why are we seeing such resistance around supplying N95 masks, for example? Mm. Uh, fast-tracking teachers for booster shots, providing HEPA filters in the classrooms uh, in about half the districts in the province that don't have appropriate filters, um, and, you know, a plan around rapid testing. All of those things are in place in other jurisdictions, just not BC. Okay, you heard in that clip from Dr. Bonnie Henry there that she has asked all schools to come up with a safety plan to avoid school closures, keep, keep schools open. Do you see those plans in place, or do you think the plans are just inadequate, it sounds like? Well, the plans are inadequate, and for the most part, the plans have already been in place. In other words, a lot of schools, you know, kept uh, assemblies virtual, had virtual meetings, had virtual uh, parent-teacher interviews. A lot of schools already had those measures in place, even though they didn't weren't necessarily required. Now, now they're required everywhere, but it's the same... Um, same measures that were in place before when it was the Delta variant. We think the Omicron variant is a game changer, but we're just not seeing the appropriate actions and preventative actions. And, you know, this has been an issue all along. We haven't been comfortable with the safety measures that have been in place. So, you know, teachers are feeling like they have the responsibility of keeping everyone safe, but not the tools. Speaking to Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, are a lot of teachers out sick? There, you know, there are teachers out sick, and, we, and certainly we've heard a few reports. Uh, teachers are getting Omicron just like other members of the public are, and, and uh, we know how rampant Omicron is spreading through communities. There's also more of an emphasis right now on the health checks, which is totally appropriate for both children and staff. This is also in light of a really significant teacher and education assistant shortage. In other words, even in uh, normal times when pre-pandemic, we had a a really significant shortage. Um, So we're concerned that this shortage, in addition to the Omicron variant um, running through schools and communities, will lead to a lot of additional functional closures. And we want to avoid functional closures, but we don't think enough is being done to avoid them. What is a functional closure? 
So, yeah, good question. A functional closure just means that there aren't enough staff to run the school and and supervise children. We've actually seen more functional closures this school year than we did the year before. Uh, We're concerned January is going to um, really play havoc with the functional closures. The problem with them is that families and teachers get very little notice. Um, Districts will be monitoring um, attendance rates, and if their attendance rates, you know, end up dipping significantly, then they will, you know, call in the rapid teams, do an investigation, and potentially make a decision to close the school if they don't have wow. enough staff to run it. Are all schools open today or are any shut down? I'm not aware of any being shut down. Okay. And so, you know, last week was, uh, part of last week was also intended to, like, ascertain staffing levels. Uh, of course, that's a moving target right now. Um, with people, you know, get, getting sick. And so, you know, we're hoping that schools remain open. But, you know, again, we think that if all teachers had booster shots, we'd have a much better chance at keeping schools open. Okay, on, on the booster shot issue, so you've asked the government what teachers should move to the front of the line to get boosters? Is that well, we what you think want? Um, teachers, uh, support staff, along with other frontline workers, ought to be prioritized. We were prioritized originally with the Essential Service Workers Program, but unfortunately at that point, there was also a shortage of vaccines. And so teachers, for the most part, got their vaccinations at the same time as their age, as their age group. And so they, they haven't seen a prioritization there, and a lot of them are telling us that they can't get their booster shots until the end of January. Yeah. Um, and January is the month that we're most concerned about, quite frankly. Okay, and you mentioned also the availability of N95 face masks. What is the issue there? Well, we think that, you know, we, we know that we have teachers that have, are medically compromised and students that are, that they, they have family members. We know that uh, N95s protect uh, the, the person wearing them for a lot longer than the uh, other masks that are available in schools. We thought we think they ought to be available. We don't see a good reason why they aren't available. Uh, certainly nothing has been provided. The other issue, of course, is the vaccine rates amongst school-aged children. Um, yeah. Only 40% of 5- to 11-year-old children are, are, have their first shot. And unfortunately, elementary schools are where we've seen most of the transmission of COVID-19. We know this from the WorkSafe data. It was disproportionately more than 75% of teachers that got sick on the job um, in the last couple of years have been elementary school teachers. Busy day for you. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. The political divide in America is our next topic. The United States today is a divided nation. There has always been stark political differences in America, but the country today as divided as ever. Nowhere more apparent than in the January 6th storming of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. last year and the reaction to it. We just passed the one-year anniversary of that event let's go to washington now and discuss with my guest dr keith martin executive director of the consortium of universities for global health in washington dc he's well known to british columbians and cknw listeners here as a former mp from british columbia and i'm pleased to welcome him back to the show keith thanks for coming on today thank you mike keith i know your your office is basically just down this down the street from congress right were, were you in washington that day that the uh the storming of the of the Capitol occurred? 
I was, and I, I couldn't believe it. I got a call uh, and switched on the news feed and saw individuals, as we've all seen now countless times, storming Capitol Hill. So where I'm located right now, our office, is literally, I get out of my office, walk 50 feet, and I'm looking at the north face of the White House. Yeah. So all of what's transpired, what we've seen on television has been happening right in front of us here. And it's been absolutely jarring. And I can tell you in the last year that things are a lot worse now and a lot more frightening here than ever before. And we're on a steady slope downward and it needs to be arrested quickly or this country will can have a very, very serious internal fracture that could have global implications. Okay, I want to get into that with you. Let me play a couple of clips here for you, Keith, for your thoughts. Now, I thought this was very interesting uh, series of comments that we saw last week from Ted Cruz, uh, the Republican senator. And after the attack on, on Congress, uh, Ted Cruz called that a, a terrorist attack. And he repeated those words on the anniversary of the Capitol storming last week and then he walked them back later on fox news when talking to tucker carlson but let me play the first clip here for you so here's u.s senator ted cruz here talking about the january 6th storming of the capitol have a listen to this we are approaching a solemn anniversary this week uh, and it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the capitol where we saw the men and women of law enforcement demonstrate incredible courage incredible bravery uh, risk their lives uh, to defend the men and women who serve in this capital. Okay, Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican, talking about the storming of Congress last year. He called it a terrorist attack. Now listen to this. Now, Tucker Carlson on Fox News went after Ted Cruz for that comment big time, saying this was not a terrorist attack. It was not terrorism that we saw over a year ago in, in Washington, D.C., Ted Cruz went on his show. Now, here's a listen to Ted Cruz walking it back here now with Tucker Carlson on Fox. Have a listen. But yeah. I agree. It was a mistake to use the word yesterday right. because the Democrats and the corporate media have so politicized it. They're yeah. trying to paint everyone as a terrorist. And it's well, a lie. Exactly. OK, so he walks it back. Heath Martin, your thoughts on that? Like, I thought that was quite interesting and revealing that you had a key Republican leader say this was a terrorist attack on on the on the Capitol and only to walk it back later when he gets pressured on Fox News. Your thoughts? A Republican uh, leader who ran for president against uh, Mr. Trump. It was a perfect, perfect uh, two clips, uh, Mike. So the first one, Senator Cruz is absolutely correct. Terrorism is the use of violence against the state to advance a political agenda. And if the, if the assault on Capitol Hill wasn't terrorism, I don't know what is. So he was correct. The second part, his walking back describes very clearly how the, the Republican Party is enthralled to President Trump. They're enthralled to him, and they're scared of him. So what we saw on January 6th, if you remember seeing on Capitol Hill, that everybody on Capitol Hill was a Democrat with the exception of, of, uh, of Representative Cheney and her father, former Vice President Cheney, they were the only two Republicans who were willing to stand up and actually simply honor the men and women who put their lives on the line to save all of the people working on Capitol Hill. It just shows you the culture of fear that's in the Republican Party right now to President Trump. 
and they're mortally afraid of saying anything that would go against what is the big lie. And the big lie, of course, is that the election was stolen by President Biden, which is a complete and utter falsehood. But if you don't, if you don't, if you don't uh, adhere to the fact and start to say adhering to the big lie, then you're really going to be smashed within the Republican Party and driven out. Okay, speaking to Keith Martin, former MP from British Columbia, is now based in Washington, D.C. On the one-year anniversary of the storming of the Capitol in Washington, the political divide in America. Let's go back to your thoughts, Keith, on the political climate in the country right now in the United States and your thoughts of where we're at. You obviously feel it's a very dire situation. Could you expand on that? Why do you feel that way? It is because if you accept the fact that having free and fair elections are an absolute pillar for state stability, what's happening here, Mike, is absolutely frightening because there's an all-out assault on election machinery. The GOP has decided, since we're not winning on building better ideas to deal with people's problems, what they're doing is they're suppressing votes. They're actually replacing and kicking out all those brave men and women Republicans and Democrats, but mostly obviously Republicans, they're removing them from the offices at a state and city level that are largely responsible for the execution of an election. So if you take out the people who are there doing their job uh, honorably and by the law and replace those people with individuals who believe that President Trump uh, won the election, if they adhere to the big lie, then you've got people who are willing to do what is necessary politically to advance the election of people who may not win those elections. That's a very, very serious issue. So you have across this country the, uh, an all-out assault, an, a coordinated assault that Steve Bannon, the former advisor to, to Mr. Trump, he's running an all-out effort across the country to remove and to undermine the election apparatus in the United States. Already they've been telling lies about putting doubt into people's minds about the effectiveness of elections against their, they're putting out lies against the state. They're drumming up and ginning up the public to be able to not have faith in the state. And what also is frightening, if you look at polls, an increasing number of, of individuals here in the United States, Republicans, believe it's all right to take up and use violence against the state. So you've got all these different pieces of the puzzle coming together people willing to take up violence against the state, people believing in conspiracy theories, individuals who are drumming up sentiment against uh, immigrants, against Muslims, against Asians, um, uh, against Democrats, and uh, are using conspiracy theories in specific election bubbles to be able to prey on people's insecurities and fears and cultural fears to be able to gin them up to do something very, very severe and potentially violent. It's not only happening in the United States, of course, it's happening around the world. And for 17 consecutive years, we've seen a decline in democracy around the world. And if you really want to be quite frightened about this, look at what's happening in, remarkably, the United Kingdom, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson has put out numerous bills right now in the House of Commons in England that are going to undermine elections in the in the United in uh, in England, which is absolutely remarkable. No one would have ever thought that was going to happen, but it's happening right now in England. How how serious? Okay, it's a dire picture you're painting, of course, but I just wonder just how serious the situation is in America. I mean, we're all standing back and watching it with, with some dismay. 
But I wonder how much of it is just it was ever thus. I mean, this is a divided country. It's always been a divided country. And it, it will continue to be so. But you obviously think it, it's a much more dire and serious situation that we face now than in the past. Like, I've heard people say, like, oh, I, could there be a civil war in the United States? I mean, surely we're not going down that road. Well, it is possible. And more and more people are more are becoming increasingly afraid that this could happen. I mean, if you look back in history, of course, Mike, any time that autocrats have come to power and have really dismantled the state and, and engaged in, in massive abuses of power, this has come to the forefront after the guns start happening and people ask themselves, well, why did this happen? Well, it's been happening for quite a while. So it's not that the country hasn't been divided. It's been divided for a very long time. But what's different now is that you've got people who are willing to use violence against the state. You've got examples of it as of the January 6th example. You've got more and more people feeling it's okay to take up violence against the state. And you have the undermining of election machinery that is taking place in the country and voter suppression. You have multiple pres former presidents, both Republican and Democrat, who stood shoulder to shoulder to say that what's happening now in the United States is extremely disturbing is a is an assault on democracy and an assault on on freedom and assault on the stability of the United States. So old school Republican leaders and Democrats have come together united around this, but the current crop of the Republican Party is nothing like what it was before. So you have people who are willing to use lies to advance a political agenda, but to do it at great expense for the freedom and principles that underline a stable democracy here in the United States. And welcome back to the show. My guest is Keith Martin, the former MP from British Columbia. He now lives and works in Washington, D.C. Lots of phone calls. Keith, just before we take a call here, your thoughts on the future and the political divisions that we see in the United States. You painted a, a pretty bleak picture there. How could that affect Canada, do you think? Well, what we've seen in Canada, it's a, it's a great question, Mike, is that we've actually seen a rise in the number of uh, uh, far right-wing groups that are against the state. In fact, there's been a 30% increase in Canada for these far right groups, and the police are very, very disturbed by it. The other side of the coin is that these groups are actually getting juice and adrenaline from Mr. Trump and his the far right forces that support him and his actions and his uh, conversations and, and pronunciations have actually given the far right wing anti-state forces strength. There's also in the world on, on hate uh, sites, Canada is the number third contributor to hate sites behind the United States and the United Kingdom. So we've got a number of people that are flying under the radar screen who are participating in these kinds of conversations sure. and are, are ginning each other up. Let's squeeze in some calls here. Daryl in Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl. Go ahead. Yes, a two-part question, actually. Uh, first of all, does your guest believe that the Republican Party of Dwight D. Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan no longer exists? And second part is, because he was a member of Parliament, does the Canadian political electoral system tend to guard against the type of gerrymandering that the Republicans do in the United States to attempt to win victory? Thanks for the call, Keith. Yeah, thanks, Gerald. Two great questions. So um, I think that we are uh, we are somewhat inoculated because we don't have the same type of uh, efforts that can be that have been employed uh, to gerrymander the system uh, as we have seen 
Um, and uh, sorry, your first question. Uh, the Republican about, Party. Yes, great. Right. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, Daryl. The, the Republicans of, of old um, are no, not so old, are actually no longer in existence, no longer wanted. So the Republican Party has become a, a party of Donald Trump. And uh, hence we saw that only one Republican, uh, uh, Representative Cheney, had the courage to stand up and honor the fallen on January 6th. Everybody else was too afraid, including Ted Cruz, to not even show up. Let's go to Michael on the, or Dan on the line of Richmond. Hi, Dan. Go ahead. Dan. Dan, sorry, Dan in Vancouver. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, hi, uh, Mr. Martin. My family are Asians, and, uh, you know, you're, 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 cause, you're, you're causing this brush here, but, we, you know, a family member of mine was attacked by Black Lives Matter uh, uh, oh. people, and they went to the police, and the police were very leery of... Uh, of so, the Black Lives Matter, is that the Democrats are, have, have, have turned a blind eye to that. How is that any different from... And the courthouse is being burned, and people being attacked in New York City and everywhere. How is that any different? I mean, you're you're you're, you're talking about one side, but you're mm. forgetting the other side. And my 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 family supports Trump, so does that make us racist? And Keith, and right Keith Martin, Keith Martin, go ahead. Well, so there's been an awful increase in in anti-Asian hate crimes all over uh, North America, and uh, are it's absolutely deplorable and needs to be addressed uh, like any other. The people who assaulted. Your family member are thugs and they're criminals. They've got nothing to do with the Black Lives Matter movement, which I actually am right up the plaza from uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza. Every protest that's taken place, and I've been to many of them, they were all incredibly peaceful and they were only asking to deal with the structural disparities in the United States that keep people of color down. And I can tell you, living here in Washington, D.C., there are many uh, structural disparities that prevent people from color from having the same opportunities as others, and that's all they're trying to what do, about, and do it peacefully. What about Antifa? I mean, there's, you know, there are violent thugs on the other side, too, right? Oh, there's violent thugs, uh, absolutely. And uh. those people are just that, violent thugs. They've got nothing to do with the type of movement that's causing for equality, calling for better policing, more effective policing for all. And the BLM movement is calling for that. We just got a minute left here, Keith Martin. Do you think, you think Trump will run for the Republican nomination again? It's for him. It's it's for it sits there for him to lose, Mike. So if he wants to do it, he'll take it. And so we have to think of the very real possibility that he's going to run and and have a very high chance of winning in 2024. Okay, we're watching it closely. Keith Martin, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for your time, Mike.